Well, it is that time of the week again. It is Truth Script Tuesday, where we go over the articles on the Truth Script website from the last week. Got some great articles for you. Uh, articles about repentance, articles about hope. Uh, we got one uh, that's a, actually a review of a book that just came out by Nancy Piercy on toxic masculinity. So um, all relevant stuff, all good stuff. And I'm looking forward to getting into it. So before we do, uh, just a reminder to everyone that if you go to the TruthScript website, that's truthscript.com, you can find all of the articles that I'm going to be referencing uh, in this particular video, or uh, if you're happening to listen, this audio podcast. And uh, there's a lot there on the website. Uh, you can, if you want to submit an article yourself, scroll down to the bottom and there is a publish tab and just click on that. Uh, if you are interested in donating, it is a 501c3 and we do produce uh, the kind of material that uh, I'm going to be talking about today. Good, good material that you won't find in other places. You won't find this on other uh, Christian blogs, really. Uh, th this is uh, sometimes some gutsy stuff we'll post. Uh, it's not a discernment blog, though. It is a short, hard-hitting, relevant, to-the-point, uh, accessible kind of blog with uh, current uh, relevant information. So um, truthscript.com, truthscript, mis uh, the mission of Truthscript is to encourage Christians to be transformed by the renewing of their minds instead of conformed uh, to the mold of the world. Uh, we also have a conference coming up, men's conference. You don't want to miss that. Truescript men's conference, overcoming evil. You can go to overcomingevilconference.com. That's overcomingevilconference.com to sign up for that. And uh, I've had actually several people reach out to me and say, John, if people need help uh, paying for this, uh, it is three days and it is um, there's a two day track and there's a three day track. But if you I would suggest if you're coming from a distance, come for the three days. Uh, and it's over $300, which I mean, that gives you, you, you have, uh, very nice accommodations. You have, um, really good food. It, it's, it, you definitely get your money's worth, but, uh, that isn't possible for everyone. And so I, I had some people reach out and say, John, if I, I'd love to sponsor someone, if someone, um, wants to go and they don't have the finances to do it, I'd love to sponsor them. So, uh, you can go to info at truthscript.com. Just email that address info at truthscript.com. And we will hook you up uh, if, if the resources are there. So there you go. Um, let's talk about some of the articles that we have today on the TruthScript website. Uh, there's three of them to go over. The first one is the book review by, uh, oh, well, of, I should say, of Nancy Piercy's book, uh, which is The to Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Now, I've read... A number of Nancy Piercy books, uh, and, and by the way, this review is uh, by Amy Simmons. I should mention that Amy Simmons, a high school teacher, um, and she identifies, though, as an inner city missionary. She holds a Master's of Arts in Christian Education from Dallas Theological Seminary. So uh, she wrote this article, and um, I, I've read several of Nancy Piercy's books. I have not read this one. Um, Nancy Piercy actually uh, did send this book to me over a year ago, perhaps, and I just didn't have the time to review it, unfortunately. I, I wish I had the time, and I, I wish I could have reviewed it and uh, maybe sent back some feedback, but uh, I uh, have not had that opportunity, and uh, so this is, I, just so people are aware, I'm going to be reading parts of this article, uh, but these, these are the views of Amy Simmons, and uh, I may add some additional comments, but um, it's very interesting. I, I am somewhat familiar with Piercy's uh, narrative here, just because in one of the appendices, appendices at the end of uh, her book, Total Truth, 
she actually talks about this. So I'm wondering if this is just a development of a point that she made in that particular book. But the article starts off with, why was Nancy Piercy inclined to write a book about masculinity? For Piercy, the reason is quite personal. She shared uh, shares about her publicly pious, privately abusive father who warped her view of masculinity. As a little girl, I wondered how a man can sometimes be so wonderful and sometimes so cruel. As an adult, I have to spend literally decades thinking through how to define a healthy biblical concept of masculinity. What is the God-given pattern for manhood? Now, relevant stuff if you listen to Conversations That Matter, my other podcast, because I just talked about this yesterday, actually, on that particular podcast. And uh, I would just highly recommend people go check that out. It's, it's biblically driven, and um, I try to lay out what a man is, according to the Bible. Uh, Piercy posits that the true biblical version of manhood, the good man, characterized by honor, courage, fidelity, and self-control, has been obfuscated by a secularized version, the real man script, which glorifies selfish ambition, womanizing, and domination. Now, th this is interesting to me, because um, you might, if you've read something like uh, Kristen Dumez's book, which is, is obviously different than Nancy Piercy, Nancy Piercy, um, more well-known, obviously, uh, in more conservative circles. I think she'd probably call herself a conservative. She's a, a Francis Schaeffer disciple, really. And um, and so, you know, she, she, I would say, not the same as Kristen Dumez, but Kristen Dumez actually, I think, tries to make this almost same point. That That's the funny thing to me in a way, or ironic thing, is if you read uh, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Dumez is trying to say that Christians have adopted this secularized version as well. They, they've imbibed this version that's encapsulated in John Wayne and Donald Trump and people like that, that says a man's got to be tough and has got to go uh, take initiative. And, and that's, this is toxic masculinity, you see. And uh, that's, that's not really uh, what we need. We need to get back to this biblical model. So I think they would disagree, obviously, about what constitutes the biblical model of what a man is, but they're still making this, this uh, kind of separation. And saying that we've adopted an, a flawed view. And of course, it's the flawed view from really more like 40 years ago. It's the flawed view from the World War II generation. It's the flawed view uh, that you don't see as much now. It, it almost died off, I would say, in entertainment, uh, in the entertainment business in the early 90s. Uh, it is, I mean, think about it this way too. The, the big action movies this summer, right? Like Indiana Jones, uh, Mission Impossible, um, the, the the one that I reviewed, uh, that we reviewed at TrueScript, uh, the, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, <laughs> uh, Sound of Freedom, there you go, Jim Caviezel, right, uh, Harrison Ford, Tom Cruise, how old are these guys, right, um, it's just funny to me, like, okay, so Ryan Gosling is Ken in a Barbie movie, like, I'm just, I'm just saying, the younger generation, uh, of actors, you don't really find the same kind of action stuff. I'm not saying it doesn't exist anywhere. I'm just saying it's it, it's it's becoming more and more rare. This version of masculinity that um, that these authors are reacting to, and so I'm probably spending too much time inserting my own comments here. But let's get back to the article. Uh, Piercy's aim for Toxic War is to dispel the false assumptions about the misogyny and oppression committed by evangelical Christian men. She argues that surprising findings from respected social scientists uh, and others show a different picture when it comes to authentically cr Christian men. Piercy acknowledges that even though the secular script for masculinity in the U.S. did not, uh, did indeed turn toxic, Christianity alone offers a superior model. 
Um, and so this is, yeah, it, it's just reminding me because it, it's the same thing um, that I saw a, a little bit, I'd say, with the social justice stuff is there's this understanding that their malehood has been corrupted, uh, that uh, there's been this, that, that the church is infused with whiteness, that there's these horrible things that stem from Western culture. That's really the root of this, by the way, it's some kind of like a Western culture. Um, all, I guess if you trace it back, I think Piercy would probably say more of a, a an industrial revolution kind of uh, influence. But but there is this kind of like from from Western culture, from these societies that were so impacted by Christianity, somehow in those societies came to exist this anti-Christian attitude, this anti-Christian belief about what it means to be a man, etc. And and so recovering the Christian view becomes a way to appeal. And I'm not saying Piercy does this, but I'm saying broadly speaking, it, it becomes a way to appeal to secularists out there who are also maybe secular pagans. We'll say pagans who are also reacting against the uh, Western view of what it means to be a man. Right. So 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 the pagans don't like the 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 John Wayne assertive type. Right. Um, and they think they're, they're confusing it. They think that Christianity adopts this somehow that Christianity is part of this and, and, and endorses this. The, the, the plain fact of the matter is the reason you have, uh, John Wayne's and, and flawed characters, you could think of other, uh, cowboy types, uh, from the, the world war II generation and, and the baby boomers when they were children, uh, those particular heroes were, um, they had a code of ethics. They were invested in protecting the weak and being courteous to women for the most part. Now I realize someone's going to put like a, a John Wayne McClintock kind of meme or something and like, Hey, look, I mean, from a comedy that he was in, but, but for the most part, like in most of Wayne's uh, roles, um, he he's gruff, but his toughness is channeled in a direction to protect the weak, to help women to um, uh, the searchers is a good example of this, where he's kind of like on the outside of the, civilization uh protecting it and and so this was the kind of the view of, of what a man was that a, a man goes and protects and um where did that come from where did th this idea that men should uh, kind of nobly give up their own selfish desires their own um th their things that would benefit themselves personally to help others to help their civilization to help their families to help their regions that that is something that arose from Christianity, and I trace this, by the way, on the Conversations That Matter podcast. I talk about chivalry, so you go back before the cowboy to the cavalier to the knight, and and before that, even to the Apostle Paul and his command to to act like men, and but also let all you, you everything you do be done in love. Uh, so again, I'm sorry, I'm inserting way too much of my own commentary in this, but uh, I think it's helpful. I think it's uh, it's relevant. So. Piercy organizes her treatise in three sections. In part one, titled The Good News About Christian Men, she heavily relies on the empirical studies of Catholic sociologist Brad Wilcox to offer encouragement to her Christian audience. Among the findings is that committed evangelicals uh, are least likely to abuse women, have the happiest marriages, and are the most involved fathers. Christians uh, might be shocked to hear this, but Piercy asserts this is because previously reported data to the contrary included nominal men. So she's saying that there were some flawed studies that went out there saying Christians are abusive, and it's just not true. The samples were off. If you take the right samples, then it, it's going to show a different picture. In part two, how the secular script turned toxic, Piercy takes the reader on a trek through American history to elucidate 
uh, in sharp detail, the downgrade of true masculinity. And th this is what I'm familiar with because this was in total truth. Uh, beginning with the col colonial period, she documents how the agrarian family unit resembled the microcosm of the Edenic ideal, where fathers lovingly ruled the home while working the family trade alongside their equally competent spouse to live out God's original mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Alas, though paradise was soon lost with the rise of industrialization. So um, the idea here is that men went to work and that was what disrupted families. And what happened was while men went to the workforce, masculinity became more associated with uh, more of a Darwinist kind of uh, approach and an animalistic kind of uh, approach uh, that they were in this competitive dog eat dog, dog world where they had to prove themselves. And the only way to gain a um, uh, approval and also be able to make a living was to kind of corrupt oneself, to participate in vices, to uh, maybe let your temper out. And, and, and that was being a man. And, and, and so this is the argument. And, and there may be some merit to this. It's an interesting um, argument. I've, I think I bought this very much hook, line, and sinker when I first heard this. And I thought, well, that's where our problems come from. Um, just because the Industrial Revolution disrupted a lot of things, and it's just easy to believe that. But, but here's the thing. I think a lot of things converge uh, for any, any historical um, development. Uh, it's not usually just one thing. It, there's, there's a number of things going on. And, and in secularism or industrialization, you, have, um, you actually have women also in the workforce. That's the thing. It's not just men. Women also go to these factories. Uh, and work as seamstresses or whatever else, right? So they're also, many of them are also ripped out of the home, especially post-World War One and World War II. Um, so, you know, is industrialization the thing that caused this? Because um, it coarsened women too, you would think, right? The same forces that were applying to both. Um, so, so, so anyway, that, that's, that's one of the things that um, I think is good to think through. Maybe someone who knows more about this can comment and uh, put your comment in the video. Uh, what you think led to men not being as uh, perhaps invested in religion, women being more seen as the the ones who are more religious and so forth. Um, I do know this. When you look at scripture, though, you you do find the woman's place is uh, in the home. Uh, you, you do find there's multiple passages that that either exemplify or teach this. And that men's place is, as Proverbs 31 says, uh, he is he is at the gates. He is in public and he's being made successful by his wife. I don't know. I think I think maybe it was, was more drastic than anything else. And, and this is this is what I'm guessing. OK, men, when they moved during the industrialization period to cities, to urban areas, to areas where there were um factories and places for them to work. They got off the farm. I think that there were more vices available all of a sudden too. That's a big part of this. There were more vices available. Uh, you, you see um, also kind of leading up to this, there's uh, on the, the Eastern part of the United States, there's industrialization on the Western part of the United States. You have pioneers who go out and of course it's a man's world at the gold mining uh, camp and, and so forth so there's all these vices that flock to those areas too i mean that's where we get like las vegas right is um wasn't i don't think it was gold mining but it was it was one of these places out west where men uh came and it, be, it was a man's world and, it, and of course men without women uh do become um generally they're not as civilized. We'll just put it that way. They're, they're, women have a civilization, civilizing uh, effect. And uh, 
so for, for whatever reason that developed and, um, but you have men also just separated from their roots, separated from their families in these cities. And Richard Weaver actually talks about this quite a bit that they had access to unlimited information. There was uh, a lack of privacy. Um, you started to, instead of fellowshipping with people or finding things in common with people and, and spending time with them who shared your genetics or your region or your, it was mainly, it was people who are sharing your interests in things. Um, and this is where you start to get, I think, you know, the after work, let's all go to the bar, let's all, or maybe the strip club in some cases, right. Where, where men are, um, where they're, they're, they're uniting with others over vice. Um, so anyway, uh, there's so much more that could be said here and I'm just not, I'm going to stop apologizing for interrupting because <laughs> I keep doing it and I don't think I'm going to stop. So, um, anyway, uh, alas, paradise was soon lost. Industrial revolution happened. In Piercy's estimation, the retreat from biblical manhood opened a Pandora's box of familial disorder and subsequent cultural chaos. Led to women taking up the mantle of moral leadership, spearheading the temperance and abolition movements. A greater divide between the sexes unfolded as men embraced um, an individualistic mindset that freed them from feminized cultural mores. So, um, so I, I don't know if I buy all that anymore, but I think it is, it is a viable theory of how, uh, some of this, the present conditions arose. Of course, present conditions though, aren't John Wayne. <laughs> Just if, if, if anyone uh, has been noticing present conditions, aren't like toxic masculine men who lack uh, moral virtue, let's say, and they want to just force things and they're gruff. Um, that they exist because men exist, but, uh, it is, it is not favored. It is not the ideal. It is not held up as society's, uh, as form of what a man is at all. It's, it's actually trashed. So, um, so that didn't get us we're, if that got us here, we're not there now. Uh, Piercy was, uh, has stated that toxic war has been her most controversial book. It should come as no surprise since our current society no longer holds a deferential attitude towards conservative Christian beliefs, including, as Aaron Wren postulates, it views orthodox Christian morality as oppressive and downright hateful. Uh, the term masculinity in today's postmodern culture has become synonymous with abuse and power. Let's see here. Uh, it is when the topic of male headship and authority, uh, just so people know, I am skimming here. Um, it is when the topic of male headship and authority in marriage come into play that Piercy tries to straddle the fence. Here she relies on the social sciences and egalitarian perspective to support a mutually egalitarian view. So here's the critique. Here's the negative. Um, one of the key findings in Wilcox's study is in practice, there seems to be little difference in terms of happiness, whether a marriage is com complementarian or egalitarian. To Piercy, this is confirmation that conservative Christian marriages are not inherently abusive. Though broadly speaking, this does not destigmatize Christian men from the label. It does not address the ongoing debate within conservative church uh, concerning gender roles and male headship at home and in the church. In fact, it only serves to further promote an egalitarian view. I could not agree more with this. Uh, and again, I haven't read the book, but if this is truly what's being said, I could not agree more with this point. And I've seen it made other places that tries to get Christians off the hook by saying uh, that, well, but by, by making this comparison that um, we're no worse, uh, that there's little difference between a complementarian or an egalitarian marriage that, you know, stop trying to bother us. We're doing it fine over here. But it's like that's you. It flows both ways. You can also convince people that it doesn't matter if you're complementarian, if that's the case, because that's not the ingredient that makes for a good marriage, or at least it doesn't contribute. 
because you can be egalitarian and have a, have a good marriage too. Piercy has tried to remain above the fray when it comes to the culture wars, which is, I, that's, you know, I don't, why? I don't know. In her introduction, I mean, cause, cause it's kind of the topic is culture war. I mean, that's the whole marketing and, and, and the, which, when you buy a book that titled this, you would think you're getting a culture war book, right? In her introduction, she states that her goal is to take a just the facts approach, blending historical and sociology, uh, sociological facts. Um, let's see. Facts, however, can be presented to affirm a particular viewpoint. And though she, she successfully blends her own conservative Christian convictions with historical data to defend complementarian men, she mostly skews to the egalitarian perspective when defining male headship. This is key. By doing so, she affirms a view that promotes the usurping of biblical male headship or legitimate patriarchy, the same type of patriarchy she took pains to validate. One example is how she describes the curse placed upon Adam and Eve in the Genesis account. In reference to Genesis 3, she uses psychologist John Gottam's finding that women seek marital guidance more than men to confirm the interpretation that desire translates to emotional longing. Modern psychological research seems to be confined to Genesis 3.16. While it is true that women have a stronger desire for emotional connection, the historical interpretation seems to be it was because of Eve's defiance of God's authority. She would have a resistance to her subordinate uh, role to Adam. Because of Eve's insubordination to God's authority, the wife's tendency is now to challenge the husband's role in the marital hierarchy, now seen as impressive. Of course, men can abuse their leadership role, but to claim that women do not have a propensity to rebel against God's created order for marriage is to ignore all the damage feminism has wrought in the church. Yeah, I, I frankly, I don't understand this at all, if that's the direction that uh, she goes. But according to this review, that is. Um, yet Piercy frequently quotes egalitarians associated with Christians for biblical equality, which affirms uh, that women can be pastors. <laughs> okay, there, that's great. Um, although Piercy's goal was to remain neutral on the topic of male and female roles in marriage, she has found herself in a no man's land. And that's the that's the truth. You cannot touch this topic with a 10 foot pole without somehow signaling that you're taking a side. And uh, so anyway, I, I have a lot of love for Nancy Piercy. There is no, um, just so people understand, I'm the I'm reviewing this. And I and I, hopefully I speak for Amy Simmons. I don't think, I, I didn't catch anything from her review that says that she is uh, personally against Nancy Piercy or thinks she's a wolf or thing. And none of that. Um, there's just, I, I think, some legitimate concerns about this narrative because it is a two-way street. It's not just about getting men off the hook uh, and trying, like, it, it, it can easily also run the other way of saying that, like, it, it doesn't matter whether you're egalitarian or not. And women, uh, feminism isn't really um, like some of their critiques are legitimate and they're not the big threat we think they are in conservative Christianity. The the, the threat seem, is masculinity in, in a warped view. And we need to um, maybe even even though we're defending against the feminists, maybe we need to, like, kind of join with them a little bit, like, like take their standards and say, like, hey, we're kind of with you. So. That it can lead to that. I'm not saying Piercy says that, but I think this kind of thing leads to that. And I've seen that over the last few years with the social justice movement. So good job on Amy Simmons. Um, I'm probably not making any friends by reading this article and inserting my thoughts uh, because Piercy is popular and she is someone who um, I think does some good work on some things. And, and I appreciate her. So it's but but uh, true script is is true script. <laughs> the, the first word in true script is uh, the important, uh, important word there. So. That is uh, one of the articles. The next one is also um, by another woman, actually, Diane Warner. Um, she's a homemaker who raises three sons and daughters, lives in Centerville, Tennessee. She's got a website, Diane or a Berean, sorry, Bereansnotepad.com, Bereansnotepad.com. 
And she writes an encouraging article here. Here, This is a positive article, and this is the kind of thing that TruthScript uh, wants to do more of. For those who are paying attention to the trends in our culture, there is a rapidly growing uneasiness when we contemplate the stability of our future. This has given rise to somewhat unique genre of thinking and writing, which I'll simply term if only. If only everyone will agree to certain ideas or will cooperate with certain practices, then we'll be able to turn this all around. Man, man, that is so true, especially the ideas part. If everyone understood this one thing, that's the key that's going to open up all the locks. Man, I see this all the time. If it's post-millennialism, if it's patriarchy, if it's um, uh, it, homeschooling, if it's, uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on, right? Um, for, for the woke crowd, you know, if, if you understand your privilege, if you, it, it's like always this one thing that like, that's where we went wrong. We went wrong in this one area and, and then everything fell apart. And if we just got back, right, um, I, I totally sympathize with this because I, I, I've started to think that's kind of ideological. It's not really how things generally work. There's a lot of things that happen. There's a lot of ingredients to a recipe and there's a lot of time that things take to change. And uh, anyway, yet along with the brave song of optimism, a counter melody can be heard, uh, which is that we need to be prepared for much harder days ahead. Uh, so prepping is part of this. What seems less often considered is our need for spiritual prepping of a different sort. We speak of getting ready to suffer, but the specifics of that endeavor are usually vague. As I've considered this challenge, I found three tangible messages in scripture which I believe can contribute. So this is really good because you do hear this a lot. Like, oh, it's going to get worse. Better find a place where you can hunker down, right? We talk about the great sort on this podcast or at least on conversations that matter. I keep getting, sorry, this is this is the True Script podcast. Uh, I have come to understand that God's perspective on our lives is different than many of us assume it to be. One thing Americans take for granted is that we have inalienable rights for life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, even for those who would discard the creator who is said to have granted these to us. There's little, uh, there's still a deeply held assumption that we are justified in seeking them through whatever means uh, we can find. But an honest study of scripture reveals a different picture. So she cites Luke 13, and it says, There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the Galileans because they suffered such wrongs? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Uh, and she goes on. So she quotes this verse, and then she says, there are essentially two ways to die. One is at the hands of someone who would take your, our life, and the other is through non-intentional means such as illness, accident, or natural disaster. But as Jesus points out, we all perish. In fact, it's precisely because of our sin nature that we die. However, we continue with an interesting parable, which I believe is directly connected. A certain man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years, I have come seeking fruit and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered, sir, let it alone this year. Also, until I dig around it and fertilize it and it bears fruit. Um, Jesus is saying that our attitudes need to be one of realizing his undeserved grace. The fig tree did not deserve to live and would not have had it not been for the invention of the preserving gardener. Now, I'm going to skip ahead a little to the um, to the conclusion of this particular point. Uh so, so it says, um, let's see, the other component of pers perspective that can be missing is the realization that our earthly existence is not heaven and centering our attention and energy on maximizing our pursuit of happiness. We essentially are trying to build heaven into this life. There are two obvious problems. First, simply it can't be done. So that's the first thing we can't have heaven. This is, I mean, this is the utopian woke stuff too. They have a problem with this. 
Uh, and in the process, we miss our true purpose here on earth, which is our second problem. God has designed our joy and our fulfillment during this life to be found not in our self-seeking, but in self-emptying. Oof, that, that's quotable. Uh, the way we actually experience heaven on earth is not by grasping for it, but by allowing the spirit to flow through us for the benefit of his kingdom. Yeah. And, and that's interesting too. When you strive for things, sometimes that's like, you, you have to like not focus on it sometimes. Like, 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 um, I'm thinking of like, even when you go to church and you're singing a song, have you ever thought when you're standing there singing, like if you, if you just kind of let the words that you're singing kind of pour over you, uh, I don't mean to be a mystical, but if you, if you just take them as they are and you're not analyzing them, right. You're not, and, and you're not focusing on Lord Jesus. Uh, please, 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 please make this a, a worship time that glorifies you. And please help me to enter in, please help your spirit to like, if you, like, if you do so much of that, you're not focusing on the act. You're not letting the words just hit you. You are instead, your, your focus has shifted to asking that those words would have an impact on you, but the words, you're not even paying attention to them. Same thing with sermons, right? So, so it's in the folk, it, it's actually in, um, it, it's not in the pursuit of the thing, right? I, so I, I guess maybe I, I'm, I'm tongue tying myself here because it isn't focusing on the thing, but it is in the pursuit. It is not in the pursuit of the object in and of itself, uh, that focusing on that pursuit it is in focusing on the object of the pursuit. Um, from another angle, the scripture also tells us we are living in enemy territory. Sometimes our enemy is hostile and we run to God for protection, but other times he is deceptive, alluring, and we are ensnared. Uh, a good summary is found in Luke 6, where Christ speaks of the blessings of hardships as opposed to the woes of wealth and fame. So th th there's a willingness that we, we, we need to have here uh, to suffer. Um, let's see here. I'm scrolling down. Uh, she, she talks about priorities. As we embrace this shift in our perspective and apply the full range of his promises to our circumstances, we will more easily be able to align our priorities with those of our king. Uh, set your minds on the things above. Uh, so it's pretty straightforward. Our minds determine our priorities. We might think we put God's uh, first in our lives, but the real proof of it is found in what we set our minds on. If you take a tally of your thoughts over the course of the day, what does it reveal? What is it that you seek? And an image I often use is that of a hurricane. The world is swirling. Uh, and its desires to sweep us into its current, but there is a place in the middle of the madness where all is calm and we can actually see the sun. Uh, part of this process of, of finding that involves learning, uh, leaning on this promise for protection and provision, which are plentiful and, and valid. In this uh, realization, we are able to willingly offer all he has given us back to him. Um, so yeah, good, really good article um, that I, I think... It helps us understand what living life should be like. Um, it's not looking at the clock every second. It's it's uh, it's not um, focusing on the things of this earth to, to, uh, in, in the sense of like becoming obsessed with them. Uh, it, it is uh, found in holding God's promises, living for a higher purpose. And, and to be honest with you, enjoying a little bit of passivity. Now, I'm not saying passive in the the, the effeminate sense uh, that men shouldn't take initiative. No, I'm saying that um, realize that most things you can't change. And that God put you here for a reason. You're going to do what you can with what he's given you. But you just leave the results to God. You don't focus too, too much on, oh, my goodness, national politics. What's going to happen? What can you do about that? Right? Right? So just kind of accepting. That's the thing I think I'm getting from this article. Accept accept what's coming. You can't stop it, whatever it is, and just have the joy of the Lord through that, that he's got promises for you. All right. 
Last but not least, the current featured one by Rosaria Butterfield, a primer on repentance. And um, I encourage some people to share this one around because I thought, man, this is really impressive to me. Rosaria is taking on, to be honest with you, organizations that she was platformed by, like the Gospel Coalition. I don't know if Christianity Today did, but she's she takes some shots at them and they're totally valid. She uses strong language to do it and it's totally biblical. And how many people who were platformed by these organizations who saw the folly in them are willing to do it? I, I know of hardly any. I hear things behind the scenes of, hey, this person changed their position. They used to be at TGC promoting uh, same-sex attraction, and now they don't, or something like that. But how many are willing to publicly come out and call out uh, and, and show to be erroneous those uh, the, the thinking they used to uh, adopt and, and um, the Ended. Uh, I don't know if she's making a lot of friends doing this kind of thing, but she's, I think she's a good example of our last article. She's just determined that it's not about her platforming in this world or like this world's passing away. Right. So, so what can you do with the influence you've been given? And she's been given some because um, of the platforming she's received in evangelical circles. So she's using it effectively. All right, let's read the article. When I heard the expression repentance unto life in Pastor Ken Smith's dining room, on an uncharacteristically hot and humid August afternoon in Syracuse, New York, in 1996. I was seven years old. Anyway, <laughs> the window fans vented in full blast where I had, uh, was having dinner at the home of my Christian neighbors. I was in a lesbian relationship about to be tenured at a first-tier research university and discipling a hearty crop of young LGBTQ radicals to follow my footsteps. Now, I say that I was seven because I, I remember when I was seven. And in 1996, not only did we have a big blizzard here in New York, uh, but um, it wasn't that except like I didn't even know. And I was seven, but I didn't know really about homosexuality. And like today's seven year olds do. <laughs> they can't really avoid you go out to the you know shopping center and you're going to you have to explain to your seven-year-old what he's seeing. So um, anyway, that it, it was a different time. But at that time, Rosario was, I mean, for, in, in 97, to be pro this stuff, it wasn't as easy. Um, it, it, it was, it meant you, you were drinking deeply of this stuff, right? So she's saying, this is where I was at. This is where I came from. As an unbeliever, linking repentance with life by the conjunction unto was easy to reject. How could life be the event that happens after repentance? And deductively, only after repentance. What kind of life? How could someone like me, writing books, teaching the students, and leading an academic department, be counted among the dead? By God's mercy, I would soon learn I was lost in my sin. My soul was rotting under the stench. I was spiritually dead with my sins condemning me through every thought, word, and deed. I had broken every commandment under God's moral law. And she goes through these commandments, what she had done personally, she takes responsibility for breaking every single one of them. By God's grace, he justified and adopted me, drew me to repentance, forgave my sins, and continues to lead me in sanctification, prayer, repentance, and joy in the Lord. That is the gospel. You have broken God's law, and he alone, his work was applied to you in such a way that you can now be in a right relationship with the Father. And, and that produces joy. Um, the Lord taught me the safest posture to strike is on bended knee. Indeed, the Christian faith paints it in bold letters. In repentance, there is life. Repentance is a Christian grace, highlighting that God and man are binary opposition because God is inherently distinct from his creation. She talks about evangelicals uh, who agree with this. Um, 
And uh, she says that there, there's a few examples of a flagrant sin out there among evangelicals. This is interesting. So she is saying this is sin. She's identifying it. After identifying her personal sin, she's saying this is sin. Andy Stanley's Unconditional Conference 2023 recently mm -hmm. advances the heretical idea that gay and Christians are compatible. According to Stanley, being made in God's image includes being made in sin's image. Evangelical Lutheran pastor Anna Helgen's Sparkles Creed declares, I think I saw this, there was a video of it, that God is non-binary and uses preferred pronouns. Uh, wow. She calls it pure Satanism. Uh, when, and she puts Pastor Anna in quotes. I love that. When man's values define God, sin can also root itself in more subtle ways. Consider the well-heeled Christian magazine that harumphed about Uganda's anti-Christian and anti-sodomy law. She's talking about Christianity today. The link is right there. Take a look at the parachurch organization that commended government schools in 2023 as safe places to receive a world-class education. When even unbelievers know they have mandatory federal legislation advancing transgender-affirming ideology. This is Gospel Coalition. This is Jen Wilkin at the Gospel Coalition. This is, this is tough for someone like Rosaria Butterfield's stature to then say this stuff. It, this takes guts, guys. Consider the influential Christian author who dedicated his widely acclaimed book, Defending Trans Christianity, to the they who wrote a transgender flag with the words Imago Dei. That was Preston Sprinkle. When my word count for this article prevents me from citing more examples, so she says that I could, I could go on, but I hope you see the problem. And here's the problem. Here's the root of this, the, 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 the whole point of this article. There is a lot of sin in the evangelical camp, but as evangelicals, we are divided about what to do about it. Some say public sin requires public repentance. Others believe self-improvement is all that we need because the doctrine of repentance has fallen on hard times. I offer you, she says, a primer taken from the Puritan Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance. And this is great. Watson deems repentance pure gospel grace, something to, so vital that no one is saved without it. Watson ranks repentance as the trustworthy, visible sign of salvation. Repentance came in by the gospel. Christ has purchased in his blood that repenting sinners are saved, shall be saved. Watson provides six ingredients to true repentance. And this is a good time, I think, to take personal stock because I'm not going to read all of this in detail. You can go check out the article. That's part of what I'm hoping to promote here is go check out these articles. But uh, first of all, sight of sin. Watson describes how, uh, though the grace of God, the prodigal in Luke 15 saw himself as a sinner, he writes, before a man can come to Christ, he must first come to himself. So you got to know that you're a sinner, right? Sorrow for sin. You have to experience sorrow. Um, he who truly repents weeps for the stirrings of pride and concupiscence. He weeps for the root of bitterness, even though it never blossoms into the act. Oof, that's, that's controversial in today's evangelicalism, let me tell you. Uh, confession of sin. Watson believes that voluntary confession is needed. We are not to blame shift our sin on anyone. Uh, shame for sin. Uh, Watson describes how sin hardens the heart, and a hard heart finds no godly use for shame. Watson reminds us that shame uh, has made us naked. And when we love our sin to languish in it, we fall away to uh, Satan. Uh, hatred of sin. Satan wants us to love our sin as a manifestation of loving ourselves. So, but Watson says loving of sin is worse than committing it. To love sin shows that the will is in sin. And the more of the will there is in sin, the greater the sin. Watson distinguishes affliction from sin. Affliction is but corrective. Sin is destructive. Um, and then turning from sin. Uh, Watson says we must point our hearts, feet, and eyes in the opposite direction of sin. So this is the repentance. So why is it hard for public figures to repent of sin publicly? 
So, so all these things, this is all part of repentance, sight of sin, sorrow of sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred of sin, turning from sin. Why is it hard to do this? One reason is that evangelical church has invented new sins that soften the existing moral law of God. Uh, and she, she takes as an example, attending a gay wedding. While a believer is in clear sin, uh, if they do that, the evangelical church he attends might call this an act of grace because affirmation keeps the peace. So they'll preference things. They'll say, well, there's a greater good here. There's a greater thing that you need to do is keep the peace uh, and or love people, whatever. And that becomes the basis upon which you then neglect uh, the law of God. Uh, the last decade has shown us that public figures are more comfortable with course correcting than self-improvement. So we must ask, does it matter? What exactly is in the theological difference between repentance and self-improvement? Thomas Watson um, says, uh, let's see, that self-improvement is a form of counterfeit repentance, that serpentine seduction about which Augustine referred when he warned that repentance damns many. What are the three ingredients of counterfeit repentance? Legal terror, force of will, and self-improvement. So legal terror, fearing the consequences of sin more than the treason against God. Force of will, making vows you will white-knuckle yourself into keeping. And self-improvement, course-correcting, and being satisfied that you have made many improvements and have left off many sinful ways, which is sufficient in your eyes. So th this is a great, 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 well, and she says at the end, by the way, she says the self-improvement thing is the aching in the camp, that this is, this is our problem as evangelicals. Um, so this is really, really great. Um, contrasting true repentance with false repentance. And, and this is what, um, like I said, needs to be done in evangelicalism. I, I hear stories sometimes about people who have reversed their positions, but they won't publicly come out and talk about it. And this is a problem. You can't just course correct. You, you need to acknowledge that you led people astray. You need to undo some of that damage and um, and leave it to the Lord. Lord forgives. So there you go. Primer on repentance at TruScript. Uh, TruScript.com is where you can go if you want to support this particular ministry. It is a 501c3. We appreciate all your support, your prayers. And uh, until next time, God bless. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.